Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. There, it's Gary Parish. It's Wednesday, February 26, 2020. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball Podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting, leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me, and for the second straight Wednesday, we will open on the Duke Blue Devils losing a road game by double digits to an unranked in-state rival. Oops, the Blue Devils did it again. Shouts to Brittany, shouts to Kentwood, Louisiana. Final score, Wake Forest 113, Duke 101 in double overtime. It's the rare double-digit double overtime loss. That's what Duke endured on Tuesday night. Wake Forest outscored Duke 16-4 to in the final five-minute period. Norlander, simple question. Is that game-set match on Duke's hopes to get a number one seed in the NCAA tournament? Yes, it is. And Duke at 23-5 and has now taken uh, multiple bad losses to teams that are not going to be in the NCAA tournament at Clemson, at NC State, at Wake Forest, it lost at home to Louisville. Not a bad loss, but you take the L there. And then the Stephen F. Austin loss isn't a horrendous loss, but also at home. And, you know, Stephen F. Austin is the best team in its conference, but it's no sure thing to even make the NCAA tournament there. So uh, if, we're, if I'm projecting out, Duke's got Virginia on the road this weekend. I mean... <laughs> It can win the game. I'm not. I'm not super confident that's going to happen. But even if it does that, there, it finishes it up with NC State and then UNC, and then the ACC tournament's not going to offer up a lot of opportunities here. So if Duke, the only way I'll tell you this: the only way Duke's got a shot at getting a one seed is it has to run the table. It's got to not lose again before Selection Sunday. I don't think that's going to happen. I just don't think Duke is good enough. And I've been I've been saying this for some of the season. Duke has maintained a respectable ranking. In predictive metrics, if we want to specifically refer to Ken Palm here, yet again, we can do that. It was number one through most of January and has been number two or number three as of late and then dipped down to five uh, in wake of the NC State loss. So it's still valued as a top five team in college basketball. But when I've seen this Duke team play multiple times in person then obviously on television, I've seen it struggle against Boston College. I've seen it get lucky in how it beat North Carolina. Uh, I saw it almost lose to a really good Florida State team who, oh, by the way, like, put a tidal wave on Louisville. Like, you want to talk about how Duke looks as of late and then look at Florida State, GP. The Seminoles look awesome. I mean, on the whole, they are terrific, and I can't shake that from my mind. Duke has just been struggling uh, more often than not as of late here. And then, yeah, um, it allowed Wake Forest. This was insane. 44 points in basically 11 minutes and change to finish the game. That's the final minute and, and change of regulation, overtime, and then the second overtime. So um, it's not impossible for Duke to get a one seed. I believe that it has to run the table and get help. I don't think that that's going to happen. I think a two seed is the best case scenario, and I still think that a three is on the table if it takes another bad loss. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't. I don't see how they get there now. Like, like you said, 23 and five overall, 13 and four in the ACC. Uh, they're four and three in quadrant one opportunities, 10 and four in quadrant one slash quadrant two opportunities. They've also got that quadrant three loss at home to Stephen F. Austin, just one and two in their past three games, both losses coming to sub 50 net teams and four of their five losses on the season are to sub 50 net teams. So you can forget about them. I, I think it's actually like barring a weird collapse that wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. They, they're not going to be able to catch Kansas and Baylor. I mean, Kansas. That's got never. That's yeah. That's GP. I yeah. think that's entirely off the table. Yeah, barring literally like Kansas losing four games in a row, that's not going to happen. So yeah, that's off the table. Kansas has eleven quad one wins. Baylor has ten quad one wins. I don't think they're going to be able to match Gonzaga's resume at this point. I don't think they're going to be able to match Dayton's resume at this point. If San Diego State doesn't lose again, I don't think they're going to match San Diego State's resume at this point. And then uh, my my sneaky Creighton Blue Jays. I mean, they've got a better body of work right now. They're nine and six in quad one opportunities, mm. fourteen and six in quad one slash quad two opportunities. 
with zero losses outside of the first quadrant. That means they don't have a quad two loss and they don't have a home loss to Stephen F. Austin. I don't think they can catch Creighton at this point unless Creighton falls apart. I, uh, you know, I, I ultimately, and I wrote this on Wednesday morning, the selection com- committee will have the ultimate say, um, the final say on this, but it is hard to project even with Duke winning out. It's hard to figure out how they're going to have one of the four best bodies of work, and that's supposed to be what it takes to get a one seed, one of the four best bodies of work. Yeah, you're right, and Duke being sixth in the net right now, um, it, it is behind uh, Dayton at four, San Diego State at five. San Diego State, by the way, remains a one loss, uh, or excuse me, remains an undefeated team, my mistake there, but it really got, it got a scare there uh, late Tuesday. Kept, Aztecs kept me up, GP. I had to be awake just in case they, they were to lose their first game, but uh, had a good rally late to beat Colorado State, and uh, of course remain undefeated but um, so good on them to uh, to dodge what would have been just you know uh, a problematic loss and, and certainly keep uh, pace on the on the one seed chase there but I, I I agree with you on Creighton in particular just because uh, no bad losses for for the Blue Jays and at this point are certainly uh, top eight in a lot of different metrics you want to look at you know net strength of record wins above bubble they've been uh, they've been pretty solid overall for Duke it's it's you know defensively a problem uh, losing at Wake Forest man like I, t- <laughs> I I just never thought I'd see this kind of Duke team give up 113 to a, a Danny Manning coach Wake Forest team. Uh, Danny Manning contract extension, by the way. I mean, is, is should that be on the t- should that be on the table now? Here's it, it, what I would say because I heard a lot of this last night. Like Danny Manning saved his job. Yeah, well, Listen, yeah. I like Danny Manning. It's I'm a, a Danny I, Manning yeah. fan, and if Wake Forest keeps Danny Manning, that is fine with me. But the idea that you would make long-term um, <laughs> employment decisions as a university based on one, I was going to say 40-minute game, in this instance, 50-minute game. Yeah. But the idea that you would let one game determine how you feel about the future of your program under a certain person, and that's either good or bad, I think is a nonsensical way to make those types of decisions. Without a, without a doubt. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Now, Duke lost in part um, because, you know, Vernon Carey fouled out, only played 19 minutes, was not nearly as much of a factor as they need him to be. Trey Jones played 40. I mean, Trey Jones is um, as relied upon as almost any point guard in America when you consider how much Duke needs him on the defensive end. And then uh, he had some big free throws to kind of extend the game there. But... Uh, just not enough. They were terrible from three, only six of 23 from, from beyond the arc, um, and they made up for it at the foul line. I mean, Duke hit 31 of his 34 foul shots there, and I thought did a, a relatively decent job on the boards. But, um, you know, Shondi Brown, who I loved as a prospect, I remember seeing him at Peach Jam some years ago, uh, he wound up uh, playing extremely well. And then Brandon Childress, just a quick thing on him. Just, you know, let's give – Wake Forest obviously has – Barely been touched upon on the podcast in recent seasons because it hasn't been relevant. And who knows, maybe we're talking more about them in next month if a coaching change happens. But uh, Brandon Childress is now a senior, obviously the son of Randolph Childress, who's on the staff there and one of the most famous uh, Wake Forest players and someone who, without a doubt, made an influence on my love of college basketball uh, when Wake Forest was awesome and he had the infamous crossover in the ACC tournament back in the mid-'90s. But Brandon Childress has been a part of a program here that just hasn't been doing a lot of winning. And after they won... It was just a great moment on the ACC Network, Parish, where he's being interviewed by the sideline reporter. All the Wake Forest fans are on the floor, but and they're directly behind him, but they're respecting his space. And he just has an emotional speech about um, basically what it's been like to be at Wake Forest for the past four seasons. And here, to get this kind of win, like it is a little, it's a mini salvation. You know, Wake Forest was able to beat North Carolina and beat Duke on its home floor. And that's... You know that's a little bit of redemption in what is obviously a lost season, and uh, so I I thought that was you know a highlight uh, of what we saw on Tuesday night with Childress and him being emotional, and then after that the the fans pick him up, they, they carry him, he's on the shoulders. I thought it was a really really cool moment. I know Duke obviously is the bigger story, but just a little bit of love to Childress and that Wake Forest team. You know sometimes in these kind of seasons you'll talk to coaches when they're really going through it, like this is the kind of stuff that at the end of the day, end of the season, you can at least look back and have a couple of bright spots for Wake Forest. Tuesday night was that or end of the decade or end of your life. I mean, like yeah. that really is a memory he'll have forever. You know, it's been a, it's been a rough four year period and, 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 you know, perhaps longer than that uh, for Wake Forest basketball, for, but for Brandon Childress uh, specifically. And, you know, for him to have this moment, that moment last night, like that, that is something he'll watch again. He'll hear about the rest of his life. Uh, Wake Forest fans will bring it up to him every time they see him. 
And yeah, he got that moment. I, I know it hasn't been the four-year career he wanted. I know this hasn't been uh, the run at Wake Forest that Danny wanted. But they'll all, no matter what happens next month, they'll all have that night. And like, good, good, good for them. And I, I love Childress, like the the big bullet point next to it. He was O of ten on the field, <laughs> and then he pulls. And so and, send, and sends the game into overtime by making that three from the top of the key. Like uh, in in the a week in which Kobe Bryant was memorialized, it's the most Kobe Bryant thing ever to be zero of ten from the field and then just be like, "I'm taking this. It doesn't matter." Yep. And so uh, that that was awesome. And then he got going like after that. He finished with 17 points. So mm-hmm. if you just looked at the box score, you'd be like, "Oh, 17 points. He was playing. He was terrible mm-hmm. for 39 minutes." And then he he got going in the final 11 minutes of that game. Afterward, uh, Mike Krzyzewski obviously spoke with reporters and here's one of his quotes. He said, "I'm disappointed in our group. I didn't think we came the way we should and the way we practice. We show our youth so much. This is our 28th game. You'd hope that we'd be older by now, but we were not tonight." Um you know, Duke has six players averaging at least 17 minutes per game. It's Trey Jones, Cassius Stanley, Vernon Carey, Wendell Moore, Jordan Goldwire, Matthew Hurt. So that's sophomore, freshman, 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 junior, freshman, three freshmen, a sophomore, and a junior. And when you take the the, the most important piece of that, and eh, I mean, I guess some people could argue Trey Jones is the most important piece, but the best player is Vernon Carey. Yes, he And is, when you yeah. take him off the court, okay, so it's a 50-minute game. He only plays 19 of those minutes. Uh, you should still win at Wake Forest. Let's be very clear. But you can see how young team on the road, in-state rival, your best players limited to 19 minutes in a 50-minute game. You could see how things might get complicated. And they and they did. Now, Dukes had no business losing the game. I mean, they, they blew uh, a double-digit lead with less than a minute and a half to go um, and just completely gave it away. I mean, it was just, you know, Duke had done to it in part what it did to North Carolina. So you have a little bit of the pendulum swinging back that way. But this is, I mean, to me, this kind of loss is, is ultimately damaging in the long run to its resume and its profile. Uh, can't call it a seed bump because you don't know. But, um, but I'm we, calling it a seed bump. Okay, well, when you, when you compound it with the NC State, I mean, 22-point loss, uh, and that's the, the largest margin of defeat for Duke against an unranked team under Mike Krzyzewski ever, okay? And then the Clemson loss... Stephen F. Austin for that'll probably I guess I'm I'm thinking Stephen F. Austin might actually nudge up to be a quad too at the end of the day, but the other thing from this by the way is and this is kind of the last thing I got on this but um so with the result of Tuesday night with that so Duke drops a 13 and four in the ACC Louisville's also a four loss team in the ACC at 14 and four Virginia's just a game behind and if UVA can get the win this weekend against Duke then perhaps we've got an interesting race for second and it's not all wrapped up but Florida State is now uh, standing alone in first place in the conference it's got a roadie at Clemson roadie at Notre Dame home to Boston College so for for FSU it's actually sitting pretty well right now um, but this means not only, you know, an FSU firmly on the two line and still if it it's even got a shot at like <laughs> we should be talking about Duke and chances of one scene going away, whatever. But Florida State's the team like that's the, that's the group right there. Twenty four and four that still has a shot. If, if SDSU takes a loss, Dayton, which got a tough win against Mason on the road. Um, it got that win on Tuesday night, but it's still like it's in the five position right now. I think I, I think that might be almost universal in terms of its resume. Dayton's in the five position, but FSU to me has got to be number six right there. And now Duke, but because it's a game behind yet again, I think I saw Goodman tweet this. Um, it has not it has not finished atop the regular season standings in the ACC since 2010, which is wild. And then it has not been the standalone champion in the regular season in the ACC has Duke since 2006, and that will not happen yet again this season, which is, that's just, it is, it's almost a bizarro world Kansas 14 straight Big 12 streak in that you can't believe that it's been like 14 years since the Duke Blue Devils have finished on top of the ACC ahead of everyone else. It's kind of bizarre. Florida State, as you point out, in first place, projected actually by Kim Palm to be the outright ACC champions uh, with a 16-4 and league record trivia time. Okay, okay. When's the last time Florida State won a conference regular season championship? Uh, I was thinking about that in my head as I was talking about it. Um, I don't know where you're going with that one because uh, <laughs> are we talking standalone or just finish the top of the league? Just like you get, a, you get to put a banner up if you put banners up for conference championships. Parish, I'm I'm in the I'm in the dark on this one entirely. Like it could have been 
recently or it could have been 40 years ago. I'm going to blindly guess. I'm going to blindly guess that they did it like two, three years ago. Am I right? Not even close. Okay. Because they got they, it. They got a good they, seed as of as of recent. So, okay. When was it? They won the ACC tournament in 2012. The last time Florida State won at least a share of a conference regular season title was 1989. Man. Can you name the trivia time? Oh, Can boy. you name the conference? So they weren't in the ACC? Nope. Does the conference still exist? Nope. Wow. Wow. Um, they weren't in the Metro. It was the Metro. It was the Metro. Wow. How about that? Okay. I was raised, I was raised on you, the Metro. You were raised on the Metro. How about that, man? That was definitely pulling out of the backside there. I thought they might have been too geographically east to be in the Metro, but uh, but there you go. 89. 89. That's amazing. I was raised on the Metro. I grew up on the – I was raised in the Metro streets. <laughs> okay. Were there Metro streets? Yes. Yes. Uh, I'll take your word for it. That league had uh, Cincinnati, uh, Georgia Tech, Louisville, St. Louis, Tulane, Memphis State, Florida State, at one, and then later Florida State, Virginia Tech, shouts to Bimbo Coles, Southern Miss, shouts to Clarence Weatherspoon, Man. South Carolina, UNC Charlotte, shouts to Bobby Lutz. Yeah. South Florida. Let's bring back the Metro, man. Bring back – dude, I would bring back the Metro oh. I think that would be amazing. I'm I'm all for it. Yeah. Why can't the metro get back together? <laughs> let's let's bring it back let's into existence. Get the existence. metro back together like it's a like it's a 80s rock band. Yes. You're like let's get let's get the metro conference back together and put them on tour with Def Leppard. <laughs> <laughs> Why couldn't we do a stadium tour Def Leppard in the Metro Conference? Uh ha- hosted in the pyramid, man. Perfect. We could put it in the, you know the pyramid's a big bass pro shop. Now. I I am familiar with that. I think you've mentioned that on the podcast before. I've still yeah. never been there. That's, never that's, been inside. That's, of that's it. actually absurd. That's that's you have no excuse for that, by the way. <laughs> I I can't think of a reason to go. I need you at some point to go and to get photos and then we'll talk about it on an off-season podcast. I will go if Bimbo Coles will go with me. You and Bimbo Coles walking hand in hand into a bass pro shop that is the Memphis Pyramid. <laughs> Talking about the Metro. Oh, good times. All right. That'd be a nice one. I mean, if you're looking for something positive on Duke, uh, before we move on, uh, still top 12 in both offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. There are only two teams in the country because of San Diego State's performance on Tuesday night when they were real shaky against Colorado State. Remained undefeated, obviously, um, and and so avoided what would have been a quad three loss, but it, it messed up their computer numbers a little bit. So only two teams in the country right now are still top 12 in both offense and defensive efficiency. It is Kansas and Duke. And by the way, on Kansas, real quick, I believe this is true. Yesterday morning after Kansas blew out Oklahoma State on Monday night, for the first time ever this season, Mm -hmm. the same team is number one in everything. Number one in all of the computers and number one in all of the human stuff. Like I don't think that's ever been the case at any other point this season. Um, it can, Kansas is unanimous, like clear cut number one team, uh, in the, in the country, but the only other team top 12 in both offense defense, that is uh, the Duke blow blue devil. So like I wouldn't rule anything out, even a national championship. Uh, the only thing I'd rule out at this point is getting a one seed in the NCAA tournament. Let's move on. Matt Norlander led his court report column on the big Ten's 20 game schedule and what it's done for that league. We're going to get into that next, but first check this out. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do. Like me, taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. 
Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. So Norlander led his court report column on the Big Ten's 20-game schedule and what it's done for that league. Norlander, I turn the floor over to you. Yeah, I uh, well, I was looking up and, you know, looking at uh, across the landscape of this fine sport and thinking about what are some of the interesting things, what are some of the unexpected things in college hoops. And we've talked, been talking about the Big Ten, and it's going to be setting uh, a league record for NCAA tournament bids for its conference because it's probably going to get um, – well, it's definitely going to get at least nine. Good shot at ten. And I think 11 is still on the table. Just Purdue or Minnesota is going to – one of those two teams is going to have to decide what they're going to do and to make that happen. But – as I detail in Wednesday's court report, please go and read. Um, the Big Ten is about to set a conference record for most NCAA tournament bids for the Big Ten, a year removed from setting a conference record for the most NCAA tournament bids for the Big Ten. Um, it had eight last season, so it's looking at a minimum of 17 year over year, uh, probably 18, and 19 is still on the table. This is the best two-year run in the history of the Big Ten. Now, if it can get a team to win the national title, all the more uh, that that statement will be true. But in the big picture, it's undeniable. The Big Ten has never been this buff, this deep, uh, and this reliable. So I went into looking as to uh, just the background of it going to 20 league games and, and what the impact has had on this. And what I discovered was, yes, former Commissioner Jim Delaney pushed for this, and he was an early advocator. The Big Ten went to 20 games, activated this 20-game league schedule at the start of last season. It was the first league to do that. I think the ACC technically voted into uh, existence a 20-game league slate in the future, but the Big Ten was the first to the table with that. Now the ACC has it. The Pac-12 and the Big East will go to it next year. The SEC, we don't know when. The American, we don't know when. And the Big 12 can't do it because it only has 10 teams. But what was interesting, and I talked to Matt Painter about this, is that while Jim Delaney pushed for it, Matt Painter was the one who envisioned to a certain degree, GP, what we have here and what we had a season ago where he said, because you got to go back to when this happened. The RPI was still a thing. They didn't even, they knew that a new metric was coming. They didn't know when, they didn't know what it would be called and how it would be measured. But Matt Painter went to the coaches in the Big Ten at the coaches meeting in the spring of 2017 and said, guys, listen, we need to be able to adapt. And there were multiple reasons why they were doing this, by the way. The Big Ten Getting the benefit of this this season has been an offshoot of the fact that they wanted to go to a 20-game schedule so that Purdue and Indiana could pay could play twice every single season in perpetuity. Michigan and Michigan State would play twice every single season in perpetuity. Northwestern Illinois, you get what I'm saying there. So that was one thing. You had the Big Ten Network, and there was a carriage package of, of television games that they needed to accommodate with the league. Okay, so those things were pushing that. And then it was, if we go to 20 league games, and this is what Painter was trying to get the coaches to do, and some accepted it, some fought it, and some still voted against it ultimately in the end. But what he was saying was, and, and him and the help of some other analysts, they, they took the Big Ten as an 18-game league, and they took the Big Ten as a 20-game league, and then they projected out, and they ran simulations and said, okay, if, this, if it's 18, if it's 20, here's how things would, uh, would shake out for our league in terms of the amount of wins we'd need if we wanted to get to six bids or seven bids or eight bids. And they saw how a 20-game schedule would remove, in theory, if the coaches were willing to do it, you take the two or th- two of the three or four worst games on your schedule that would be buy games. We are replacing those with, yes, a home and a road, but it's within the Big Ten. You're going to get better attendance. You're going to get better opportunities to up your schedule. And on the whole, it's going to improve the league's chances as long as our teams are good enough and winning the non-conference there. Um, so it was really Painter as much as it was Delaney. And Painter is quoted in the piece. He talked to me extensively about it. And is, he's very smart on this stuff. And what's, what's particularly interesting is that Purdue is 14-14 and 14 right now. It's on the outside looking in as it should be. You and I, Parrish, uh, we agree on plenty disagree on some, but I don't know if we agree as fervently as on as many topics as we do as your loss volume absolutely has to be taken into account when you are seated or if you are even selected to the tournament. I A 14-14 team being in the conversation to make the NCAA tournament inherently does not sit well with me. 
But what Painter was envisioning is, is in play here. If Purdue can win three of its next four games, say get to 18 and 15, and those three wins are of quad one variety, it's going to have, yes, a high loss total. So it'll, it, if it gets in, it would squeak in, but it's going to get in nonetheless because the Big Ten around it, has it's been a rising tide that has lifted all boats. So it was... Uh, it was intriguing to hear that from Painter. I talked to Holtman about it a little bit. He was ambivalent at first. Now he's seeing what's happened. Ohio State this year is practically the same exact record parish as it was a year ago, and its net ranking is 20 to 25 spots higher because of how much the Big Ten has helped it. So, yes, the teams did need to win outside their conference, but I don't think people quite realize that this is like this might be the golden age of Big Ten basketball. And over a two-year span, it can claim to be the best conference in college hoops. That's never been the case. We'll see if it can get a team to the the Final Four. We'll see if it can get Maryland or someone else, Michigan State, to win a national championship. And I think for the general public, that might need to happen for people to acknowledge what we're talking about here. But I thought it was interesting how the Big Ten timed this perfectly. And as Painter said, you know, coaches can sometimes be really late to trends. We can be behind the ball. We get stuck in our ways. But here, I thought it was so important for us to adapt to a 20-game schedule and to see this coming with the then-unknown net that it's uh, it's coming up roses. And as we see this year, the Big Ten is comfortably the best league in college basketball. Yeah, I, I don't know why the SEC hasn't gone here yet. Um, and I, I think it will eventually for, for a variety of reasons. A lot of the ones you just laid out, it helps from a computer numbers perspective. But also, you have the SEC network. It's just good inventory. for you know It, it creates more league inventory for you, more com- compelling games. Um, for your individual universities. Um, also, just and I don't, I don't want to oversimplify it because it's not as simple as I'm about to say, but th- the formula for this stuff seems pretty clear. Win your non-league games and then get into your league. And if everybody in your league has good computer numbers when they enter the league, it's just going to feed off league play. It's just going to feed off of each other. I mean, suddenly, you know, Every loss is a top 50 loss. No big deal. Mm. Every loss, every win is a top 50 win. woo I mean, it's like you, you, you create a situation where more often than not, and this is the case of the Big Ten right now, more often than not, this when you get ready to play a game, here is what you're facing. An opportunity to add a quality win based, based on computer numbers. And, and if you don't get it, it's just a loss to another quote-unquote good team, mm-hmm. not the worst thing in the world. And that is the way you build an inc- – that's how you get 9, 10, 11 teams in the tournament. Everybody's sitting around with a whole bunch of quality wins and very few bad, quote-unquote bad losses because if you add to – you know, we're not adding games to your total schedule. We are taking two non-league games and flipping them into league games. And what you are by extension doing in most cases is eliminating the possibility of two, quote-unquote, bad losses and adding the possibility of two, quote-unquote, good wins. And that seems like a no-brainer to me. And that's what Painter said. There's a lot. Of, there's a. There's some data points in the story that I would point people to. I don't want to spoil everything. And there's a lot there. So please go read the piece. But Painter said, uh, when it came to some of the coaches, I had to take the decision out of their hands. Like I had to say, like, because I wouldn't. If we stayed at 18 and still wanted to take this philosophy, I still wouldn't trust the coaches to not schedule too low. Painter was saying, like, we want to avoid. Forget like 250 to 350. You know, generally speaking, in these rankings, I want like 200 or worse. If you can knock them out, it will collectively helped the league and he did point to and I spoke with Tim Miles uh, who's been since fired from Nebraska but Parrish do you remember two years ago now the time on this is is crazy because they have the meetings in spring of 2017 the next season is when Nebraska gets sort of screwed over on this on the league schedule remember Nebraska was a controversial bubble team it didn't get in because the Big Ten only sent four teams to the tournament in 2017-2018 it was Michigan Michigan State Purdue and Ohio State I want to say and when that happened, Nebraska only played all of those four teams once in the regular season. Three of the four games were on the road, and then it got Michigan in the Big Ten tournament, and it lost. So it went one and four against the four teams that went to the Big Ten. The way that the schedule shook out for Nebraska was inherently unfair. It was just it was bad luck. Nebraska didn't quite win enough in the non-conference, which it needed to. So going to a 20-game schedule then brought more balance overall for all of the teams so that you would not have a Nebraska-type situation repeat itself. Now, if you want to make the argument that 
Uh, if you were going to look at Nebraska's schedule through, through certain evaluation tools, it should have been in. I'm not going to disagree with you, but the reality of using the RPI then and all that, it was used against Nebraska, so that's why they did this. Unfortunately, Miles didn't make the tournament the next year. He tried to schedule up, and they're knocked out. One more facet of this, which I – here's how the Big Ten has also been fortunate. There is a certain rotation, like as we've talked about before, I think with the Pac-12 and other schools, like these leagues have schedule rotations set up years in advance. Well, this year, it just so happened that the two worst teams in the league, Northwestern and Nebraska, all of the other 12 teams only play those two teams some combination of three times. So there is no team in the top 12 of the Big Ten that has to be weighed down by having four total games against Nebraska and Northwestern in the regular season schedule. It wasn't designed that way. It just happened to shake out that way. And so that's why, in small part, again, the non-conference winning is huge, but that's why you still have 12 teams that are hopeful to get into the NCAA tournament out of the Big Ten. And the season you're referencing, to be clear, is 2017 18 correct with nebraska yeah getting they were they were elbowed out because they didn't have enough opportunities in the big 10 against the best teams i'm compelled to point out that is the season they went 16 and 1 inside pinnacle bank and by the way since you bring that up with our little uh, naming game that is always pinnacle bank all right that's yeah, pinnacle bank's pinnacle bank that's correct okay i just wanted to make sure we're on the same page with that. of course pinnacle okay. bank, pinnacle bank okay. one of the most feared um, uh, road atmospheres in college basketball history, evidence being that 2018 season. Think about this. This is how much of an impact Pinnacle Bank makes. This is the thing people don't realize. Mm. We're talking about an NIT team that went 16-1 and at home. Crazy. But that's Pinnacle lo- Bank for you. Lone loss that season. Trivia time. Oh, boy. Oh, lone it's loss. yeah, it's going to be, well, I, I... Who was the only, who was the only man to go inside Pinnacle Bank Arena that season and walk out of there alive? Well, it's got to be what I just referenced. So they only, they played the top four teams in the Big Ten. They lost three of them on the road. They lost the other one at home. So I'm going to say it's Michigan State. No. Okay. No, I don't, I don't think your facts are right, by the way. Well, hold on, then what's the team? I, oh, they won the game at, oh, they won the game at home. So the win might have been on the road. Okay, so... Oh, because they won at Michigan. Do I have it right? They won at Michigan or no? They they beat Michigan at home and they No, they beat... lost to them. They lost them in the league tournament. Okay. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Is it a Big Ten team? Only one man walked into Pinnacle Bank and then walked out alive that season. And it is not a Big Ten coach. Oh. Is it a gettable coach? Is it even is it kind of gettable? It is a Hall of Fame coach. Um did Bill Self walk into Pinnacle Bank and get a win? Bill Self walked right into Pinnacle oh, Bank. Oh, he did. <laughs> on December 16th, 2017, and he walked out of there they with won. a 73-72 victory. Yes. Barely. I remember Barely this. By a point. Yes. They, if they, I think there was something controversial near the end of the game because the whole thing was if they had beaten Kansas, they probably would have been a sure thing into the tournament. There we go. So don't, ever, don't ever try to tell, dismiss uh, Pinnacle Bank again. NIT team went 16-1 and <laughs> inside Pinnacle Bank, and the lone loss was to Bill Self by a point. That's, that, that's the impact Pinnacle Bank makes. It does, it does make a... Uh... <laughs> It does make a significant impact. And Nebraska, by the way, well, hasn't been making an impact this season. Uh, they host, on the topic of this, Pinnacle Bank will be host to Ohio State on Thursday. And I mentioned uh, uh, Purdue. It's uh, It's got to host Indiana on Thursday as well. Purdue needs to win that game. It, like It needs to win that game to continue. And then Rutgers on Wednesday night here, it plays at Penn State. Rutgers needs to prove that it can win away from Quincy Doobie Pavilion. It plays at Penn State. But again, we talk about this, a lot of Big Ten games on Wednesday and Thursday night. Keep that in mind as we go forward. And yeah, it's going to be a huge, huge selection Sunday for that conference. In all, and in all seriousness, everything I initially said about Pinnacle Bank on previous pocket was rooted in that season. <laughs> it was. Because what happened was you were looking at that season's Ken Palm page, and you thought, oh, this is this is just no, unbelievable. I, no, I actually remember that. I remember thinking, man, you can't go into Pinnacle Bank and yet, unless you're Bill Self. You better be Bill Self. Yeah, well, and as, as we've learned, like a lot of other coaches too, but just not that season. That not that season. Yeah. Not that se- you better be Bill Self that season. That's right. Be being John Beeline will not get you out of there alive that season. That's correct. Being Tom Izzo will not get you out of out of there alive that season. I, I agree. Being, being Grant McCaslin will not get you out of get you out of there alive <laughs> that season. 
Grant McCaslin drop on the he podcast. Lost, he, lost, he lost at Pinnacle Bank that year. Uh, you, you have no idea the people who lost at Pinnacle Bank that year. I can get an idea, though. Yeah, like d- d- Jay Spoonhour <laughs> okay. executed inside Pinnacle Bank. Oh, gosh. It's getting it's getting dire in a hurry. Do you know Do you know Steve Henson went into Pinnacle Bank that year? Did he walk out alive? I can nope. tell you Steve Henson was coaching and still is coaching UTSA. Yeah, well, yeah, well, like, go ask him how many wins he's got inside Pinnacle Bank. I'm gonna call him. Care. I'm gonna call him when the podcast is done. I'm gonna ask him though. Keith Walker. Keith Walker tried don't, to take Delaware State into Pinnacle Bank. Don't have Keith Walker's number. I don't think Keith Walker coaches at Delaware State anymore. He he shouldn't. He went four and twenty-eight that year. That was, that's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> little problem there. Let's see. Let's see if he got a next season after that. Nope, that's when Eric Skeeters took over. <laughs> Skeeters, it was, okay. It was, it was, uh, uh, Keith Walker went into Pinnacle Bank, took a butt whipping, and then took a whole bunch more, and that was it. <laughs> so you they know, were I like, told at myself. Delaware, I was at like, Delaware, Delaware State, they were like, all right, that's enough. Let's get Eric Skeeters in here. I knew, I knew, knew, knew when I mentioned Nebraska as part of the segment we were going here. <laughs> all I, right, I knew we were getting a Keith Walker mention. It was unavoidable. Let's move on. Wednesday night schedule is kind of lame. Did you look at it? Only three games yeah. on the schedule featuring at least one ranked team. And Thursday night, I don't know is if it's the best, but it's a Pac-12 night, and we got a ma- a, a massive game in the Pac-12. Massive? Now, if I think it's massive. I think it's sizable. I feel like it's it's bigger than Joe Burrow's hands. It is. Bi- it is bigger than Joe Burrow's hands. It's it's considerable. Uh, massive is. I mean, it's it's not a pinnacle bank, so I don't know if it's massive. We have Arizona State at UCLA inside Reeves Nelson Pavilion. Did you see that he's no longer even named Reeves Nelson? He changed, Hold up. He changed, How is Reeves Nelson not named Reeves Nelson? He changed his name, man. <laughs> he changed his name. name. To what? To Prince? No. Someone tweeted us. Someone tweeted us. Hold on. I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah. yeah we're going to have to rename this building because it's not Reeves Nelson Pavilion. He changed his name. Yeah, to so far one. Oh my God! April sixteenth, twenty sixteen. Former UCLA basketball player Reeves Nelson. See, this is what happens when you're just talking off the cuff, trying to name arenas after former players with tattoos all up cuff. and down their I, arms. I, I put a lot of thought into that. There's well, not enough cuff. because in April of twenty sixteen, we're going on almost four years. Reeves Nelson no longer exists. He might as well have just walked in and tried to coach a game in Pinnacle Bank Arena because he does not exist. He has officially changed his name. To so far one, I think that's how you pronounce it. S O P H A U R one. So far one sounds like an Xbox handle. Anyway, that sounds, that sounds like that sounds like a drug problem thing. All right. Well, I can't say that one way or the other. But regardless, um, Reeves Nelson Arena. I'm not. Uh, I'm not so confident that we can uh, that we can continue on with with that. So, do you have another? Recommendation, nomination. No, I, I have never been more committed to it being Reeves Nelson Pavilion. Now that you just told me Reeves Nelson just decided to Reeves Nelson like just decided he fought everybody at UCLA and then changed his name. You can't do that. I I was I was big on Aaron Laflalo, but okay, fair enough. Aaron Laflalo Court. We can give him the court no, designation. No, it's it's Aaron Laflalo was a wonderful college hoops player. I loved watching him play. Aaron Laflalo, I dude, you you you're acting like I didn't have Thanksgiving dinner with Aaron Laflalo one night. One day that that happened. Yes, me, Aaron Afalo, and <laughs> who was the ridiculous? Who, who was the other guard? Jordan Farmar. So me, you were Jordan. obviously covering like the NIT in New York, right? Yeah, yeah and uh, yeah, UCLA was there, and they invited me and my my wife and my oldest son, who was a baby then. Um, they invited us to their uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and so yes, I, I'm, I, I got it right here. Uh, the 2005-2006 season, why would Parrish have been there? Because during November of that season, UCLA played Memphis in the early season NIT. Right. And so afterwards, the NIT people were like, hey, we're having Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow. Um, do you, you know, if you want to, and I said, I got my family. And they were like, bring your family. It's fine. And I said, okay. And we ended up seated at a table. It was me, my wife, my son, Aaron Afalo, Um Who was the other one I, I said? Jordan the, the, Farmer. Jordan Farmar, yeah, that was my that was my Thanksgiving. I had Thanksgiving breakfast or lunch or something with Jordan Farmar. That's a no, true story. No one has Thanksgiving breakfast. That's that's not a thing. A Thanksgiving lunch then. All right, there we go. I I ate dressing with 
Aaron Aflalo and Jordan Farmar. And eventually you grew to hate Thanksgiving. Okay, anyway, we've got a game on Thursday between UCLA and Arizona State, and suddenly it is super compelling. bigger than Joe Burrow's hands. Bigger than Joe Burrow's hands, I agree with you. Um... UCLA hosts this game. So here's where these teams stand. UCLA is 17-11. and 11. It's won five straight. That started with a road win at the time. Stunner by 13 points at Arizona has followed that up. Home OT to win to Wazoo. Home win over Washington. They're terrible. Road wins this past week against Utah and then against Colorado, which has vaulted UCLA into the at-large conversation. Arizona State, meanwhile, is 19-8. and eight. It sits at 10-4 and four in the league and now faces uh, you know, roadies against the L.A. school. So UCLA and then it plays at USC on Sunday. In the Pac-12 right now, Arizona State is first by loss. It's 10-4. and four. And then you've got Oregon and Colorado and UCLA and, and Arizona all with five losses in the column. Now, you may know the answer to this because our managing editor tweeted this out. But I'm going to trivia time you anyway. Because we talked about Florida State in the last time it finished atop the regular season standings in its league. Do you know the last time that Arizona State won a regular season conference championship? Yes. Okay. 1991 Metro Conference. Okay, that's not the answer, man. They mm. were, were they in the Metro? No. 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 <laughs> of course not. But this is... How could Arizona State be in the Metro with... with I know. With I was couples. leaning into the bit. All right. Here is a stunner. Arizona State... Shouts to Adi Joseph. He brought this to my attention. Um, Arizona State has never, and I mean ever, won a regular season or postseason championship in the Pac-12, in the Pac-10, in the Pac-8, ever. Its last regular season conference championship came in 1975 when it was in the WAC. That's a wow. That's a stunner. Bobby Hurley has this team on the precipice of, you know, potentially really one of its best regular seasons of all time. And it's going to need to be able to pull off some road wins to help ensure that to happen. But, yeah, ASU kind of out of no I, – you know, I love when we give some West Coast schools some love – it, it's kind of out of nowhere that it's been able to rise the way that it has because traditionally, even when it's had good teams, some nice talent, future NBA picks, it's still, you know, finished second under Herb Sendek in 2009-2010. 2013-14, it was, it was third. Uh, last season, it was second. It can't get to the top of the heap, not since, again, 1975. That's one of the more surprising stats I think we've mentioned on the podcast this entire season, GP. Um, and it is, uh, to me, of all the Thursday night games – I think that's the most must-see, most intriguing. IU at Purdue. Purdue's got to win it. Uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, whatever. Arizona, USC, okay. Uh, but, yeah, Arizona State, UCLA, 11 o'clock. It's, of course. Of course. I just saw the- this. It's an 11 o'clock Eastern <laughs> tip on the Pac-12 yeah. network. What are we doing? It's impossible. What are we doing? You might as well put it on pay-per-view for $50,000. I honestly, before I saw the time, I thought it was like a 9 o'clock tip on ESPN2. Like, I thought that's where we were going. And then I look, and it's 11 o'clock on the Pac-12 network. Ugh. Gosh. You got no chance. I, I have my direct TV bill is in excess of three hundred dollars every month. I have every channel you can get. I, I cannot watch UCLA, Arizona State. It's unbelievable. I can watch anything except Pac-12 basketball games. That's that's unreal, man. I can't. The conference can't get out of its own damn way. I just and it's a, it's a late tip and everything. Arizona State, by the way, is forty first in the net. It's five and six in quad one, four and two in quad two. Has no bad losses. Uh, UCLA, it's much it's much further down. It needs to win on Thursday. It's seventy seventh in the net, five and five in quad one, but it has a quad three and a quad four loss. I believe hmm, they lost at home to Hofstra. No, the Cal State Fullerton home loss. That's what it was. That's, yeah, that's a horrendous loss. That's a home loss there for UCLA. That's even worse than, obviously, the Duke SFA loss. So UCLA is going to have to overcome that. So it's got to be the Arizona State. Truth be told, it's got Arizona and USC. It's got to win at least two of the three, and then it's got to get to the Pac-12 semis minimally, in my opinion, to have a conversation to get into the tournament. I read on one of the sports business insider sites mm-hmm. that DirecTV is anticipating having a deal with the Metro Conference Network before it gets a deal done with the Pac-12 Network. I th- that surprise I, you? John Oran reported that, I think. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's a, John Oran reported yeah. that DirecTV is expecting to have a deal with the Metro Conference Network before it gets a deal with the Pac-12 Network. I, it would not surprise me. 
The Pac-12 is the weirdest league in the country. Think about that. Think about what I'm about to tell you. Some of it you already said, but I'll repeat it because I don't mind doing that, obviously. Um, Washington opens the season with a win over Baylor, is now dead last alone in the Pac-12 standings. UCLA started the season 8-9 and nine with losses to Hofstra and Cal State Fullerton and is a home win away over Arizona State from being tied atop the league standings. None of that makes any sense. It doesn't make sense, and... Uh... I, I like I was flying Saturday. I didn't see the Colorado game. I saw the Arizona. I don't even understand how UCLA is doing this. Credit to Mick Cronin for like this might be just Mick Cronin going Mick Cronin. Like eventually the teams are going to bend to his will and become what he wants them to be. But yeah, they the fact that they're in the spot they're in is cookies because they did not expect to be this in year one, tied for second in the thick of it with the Buffaloes and the Ducks, the Wildcats and the Sun Devils. So we uh, we'll wait and see. Real quick, by the way, I did this flowed in my mind when we were talking when you mentioned Pac-12. I just I will give a shout to Sabrina in UNESCO. She goes and gives a eulogy on Monday at Kobe Bryant's memorial. Great speech down in L.A. at Staples Center. This is the best women's basketball player. This is the best basketball player in the sport this season. Then she completes the first time ever 2,000 points, 1,000 assists, 1,000 boards for a career. Never been done in D1. She gets her 26th career triple-double in the 74-66 win. Oh, by the way, up at Stanford. So she had to leave the Memorial, fly up, meet her team. She's awesome. Seth Davis wrote a really good piece on her recently for The Athletic and her relationship with Kobe as well. Um, so shouts to her. Like, she is rightfully receiving a lot of attention, a lot of pub. She Like, we have... Probably one of the five greatest women's college players ever playing amongst us right now. She's doing things that just have not been done before. And uh, for her to do that on the same day she spoke at Kobe's memorial, which was, I'm sure you saw plenty of it, like a super emotional thing. Um, when I saw that she was speaking, I was I just, I was kind of blown away because she had the game the same night. But that kind of goes to how close she, she'd only known Kobe for like a little over a year. But it speaks to how much that his family uh, how much she means to them and the fact that they asked her to speak I thought was was really impressive. That was – talk about an all-time day for Sabrina. That was fantastic. Yeah, and the memorial um, – you, you, you referenced it as Kobe's memorial, and I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I misspoke, but, but yes. It, but it was Kobe and Gigi's memorial, yeah. and I thought like they really like made it Kobe and Gigi's memorial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's how Sabrina ends up there. It's how Gino Ariema ends up there. They didn't just bring in uh, Kobe's um, – uh, teammates and and Kobe's idols, you know Michael Jordan and 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 Shaq, they brought in people who meant that to Gigi as well. Like without Gigi being a part of the story, Gino is not speaking. I doubt Sabrina is speaking, mm. but because Gigi was such a, um, uh, uh, because women's basketball meant the world to her, and then by extension to her father, they really. I thought did a nice job, and I assume Vanessa was behind most of this. They really did a nice job of of making it about Gigi as well. I mean, obviously, when one person is Kobe and, and the other person is not, it, it, the Kobe stuff is going to get the most attention. But I thought it was really sweet and appropriate that they they included speakers for Gigi who otherwise would not have been there. And yeah. I think Sabrina and Gino were, were both examples of well, that. Well, that and... I mean, first of all, when Jimmy Kimmel said, when he was introducing Vanessa Bryant before he said Vanessa, when he when he actually said Vanessa Bryant's got like it actually walloped me. I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to get up there and talk right now. That was emotionally overpowering. But Vanessa, and then you had Diana Taurasi, and you had Sabrina, and you had Gino Oriema, and you had women and women's basketball. Um, I thought that was. Amazing and something that Gigi and Kobe would have specifically uh, wanted. That was because, yes, uh, she was going to go on, uh, by all accounts and expectations, to be an incredible player. And Kobe Bryant championed the WNBA women's basketball. Um, so I know we're a couple of days removed from it, but uh, Sabrina in particular having an incredible week. And, yes, yeah, she, you know, she is the player of the year in all of college basketball, regardless of division or, or gender or whatever. She's a, she's a fantastic player. And she was impressive on that stage. I mean, think about what that must be like to be a college senior and on that stage. And like you look out and you probably don't look out for your own good, but you're well aware there is Michael Jordan. There is Shaquille O'Neal. There is Steph Curry. There is Beyonce. Yeah. There is Kanye West. I mean, it's a pretty 
star-studded, um, somber, but star-studded event. And for her, again, a college senior, to be able to to stand on that stage and 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 and, and deliver the speech that she delivered, just super impressive. And then to travel, play in a game. And it wasn't just like, you know, some whatever game. It was a matchup of top five teams. Exactly. And it was a big game. Clinched a clinch share of the regular season title with Oregon getting the win. Yeah, it was a huge day. Amazing day. Amazing day for her. And, um, yeah, the whole – the whole you know, at this point, I'm assuming, if you care at all about the Kobe Bryant and Gigi Memorial, you, you've seen what you want to see. But um, I, I can't recommend those speeches enough. People have – not argue, nobody's arguing, but like said, ah, this was the best or that was the best. I, I, I could list them in order of, of, uh, 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 you know, in, in which I enjoyed them. I didn't think there was a bad one. I thought they were yeah. all really, mm-hmm. really good. And it was a beautiful, um, beautiful memorial. Let's move on uh, to the mailbag. I went to Apple podcast and found the reviews and you guys are awesome. Um, you know, continuing to go there and, and leave reviews and, and leave questions. And I try to pull some questions from there. I did find three. And so we'll start with question number one, because uh, it comes from Gotar Hills 3535. And I thought this was interesting because I hadn't thought about it at all. Mm. So which seniors in college basketball have the b- best chance to be impactful NBA players? And when I read the question, you know, anytime you hear a question, you immediately try to think of an answer. And I was like, you know, I don't know. And I went to our, our buddy Sam Bassini's latest mock draft at The Athletic. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a senior, sen- a single senior being picked in the first round. So if I asked you, give me one that'll probably be a second-round pick, but you can see being a seven-year NBA player, who you got? Um, that is a good question. I mean... When I look at, they're not the same player, right? Um, but when I think back to how relative to where he was going to be drafted, let me let me see if I can guess who you're talking about. Okay. Fred VanVleet. Nope. Okay. Nope. When I think about, but yeah, absolutely, and I I have owned that multiple times before, and Fred and I have even talked about that, where I was like. Fred VanVleet is one of my all-time favorite college players. I have a hard time seeing him making it more than a couple years in the NBA. And then I think he retweeted it or favorited the tweet, and then we talked <laughs> later down the road. Oh, he saw it. Yeah. And then I owned up to it. I'm, listen, he has an awesome success story, and he's like a legit major player for the reigning champions. It's just such a cool thing. No, but what I was going to say was I am not comparing these two players in terms of their, um, their total skill set. What I'm going to say is – they're both guards, undersized, shoot well, and relative to where he was drafted, Trey Young, to what he's been, there was still plenty of doubt about his general game. It would not surprise me whatsoever if we looked up and saw that Marcus Howard had a seven, eight-year career considering how the game is played, not where it's going, where it's established to be. The guy just can get buckets. He's really tough, and I sometimes think we have um, – a wrongful bias against undersized guards who stay four years in college, but the dude scores. So he's the most obvious one that jumps out to me, um, and he would be my pick. I'm not saying he's going to be a starter. I'm saying I can see him sticking on a roster for two full contracts. I definitely can see that happening. That would be one that immediately jumps out to me. Powell uh, could certainly be there as well. I don't I – don't, doubt his uh his staying power significantly i also think that peyton pritchard is a senior who to me if you watch peyton pritchard and you and he does not get picked in one of the top 60 picks what are you doing how much again like okay maybe a little undersized dude is tough as hell can make big shots as a smart player and uh, you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna like you know put pigeonhole him the way that you know some people thought you know, Luke Heinrich coming out of Kansas was an awesome college player, but because he was a white guard on a really good team, he wouldn't stick. Like, like Luke, uh, Kirk Heinrich was a really good NBA player for a long time. Peyton Pritchard, I think, has a really good shot at being like a seven, eight, nine-year pro. Uh, Cassius Winston comes to mind as somebody who I could see playing in the NBA. Um, Skyler Mays, I could maybe see playing in the yeah. NBA. Let me ask you about this one. Okay. Can you Kazabuki play in the NBA? Yes, you Kazabuki can play in the NBA. Yes, I think that he can, and he will. Um, shame on me for not thinking of him sooner. Um, I think Yudoka Azabuki 
I, I would take him in the first round. I mean, he's gotten good enough defensively. And, yeah, I know, a lot of it's just dunks and trash pickups and lobs and all that stuff and putbacks. I get I get all that. So that's why he's going to be nowhere near the top 20 conversation. But he will be drafted. I would take him in the first round. And he continues to get better. By the way, I played a game two nights ago, was it? Or was it last night? I'm losing track of my days here. Monday night. Monday night. Yeah, his brother came over from Africa and saw him for the first time play a game in like 10 years. That stuff is awesome, man. That's just so cool. And he even admitted he was like a little bit nervous. But imagine that. Your bro comes over and sees you and he has another really good game. So yeah, I think Yudoka, uh, he's got a good shot too. I was uh, I do a weekly spot with Soren Pretro in Kansas City, and at the end of the segment, he, he does a Final Four um, thing where it's just like four questions, and I, I think it's supposed to be four quick answers, but nothing with me is ever a quick answer, so it takes like 20 minutes. But he asked me, where will Yudoka Azabuki be picked in the 2020 NBA draft? And I said, I think I said 34th, 34th. I could see him going in the mm, 30s somewhere yeah. because – you know the reasons you wouldn't take him is are obvious you know like he's a traditional big who you know is not a you know who can't stretch the floor those guys have a hard time playing in the NBA now but the reasons you would maybe take a chance on him with a with a you know second round pick is my god he's like just an overwhelming force around the rim and an efficient and you know the high percentage you know the, the you know, big bodied you know, physically overwhelming center, and, and maybe you can figure out something to do with that. So I, I do think he'll get picked. I don't think it'll be in the first round. Let's move on to second question. Question number two comes from Josh Icho, 33. That's on Apple Podcast. He says that last season, Norlander, mm. you said that you had an extended story on how Leaky Black got his name, <laughs> and he's been waiting to hear it ever since. He doesn't think you ever actually told it. And I don't think you ever actually told it. Did you ever tell your Leaky Black story? I did not, and I cannot hear. We're actually bumping up against a, a deadline on my end of it. I will tell it. I ha I forgot that I was supposed to tell it. We, we do that on this podcast, though. We kind of <laughs> say we're going to do that, and then we totally forget. So we appreciate the listeners for keeping us honest. Yeah, there is a, a little bit more to that story, and I will get to it. Someone just remind me again later in the week or next month. I, I will get to the Leaky Black thing, I promise. Okay, question number three comes from Grant. Says he's going to be attending Southern Illinois in the fall. So he's an NBC fan. Wants to know if Northern Iowa can get an at-large bid, if Northern Iowa needs an at-large bid. What do you think? I think they can't take another loss. They're 46th in the well, – the, the only way they need one is if they take another loss. You're right. <laughs> so they're screwed. That can't, I, I, that can't I, happen. I, yeah, that can't happen. They're 21-5, and five, 46th by the in the way, I agree completely with that because when I, I looked at their body of work late last night, I was like, yeah, they can't take another loss. And then I immediately said, if they take another – the only way they need an at-large is if they take another loss. So so the answer is I don't, I don't think they can get an at-large. I think they're going to have to be auto-bid or NIT. Yeah, they were. They're a good. I'll tell you this. They're a good team that is capable of winning a game or two in the NCAA tournament, and I like their group. Like veteran, good shooters. I think their their resume is close. Like I think they are in the conversation, but I don't know if the, by nature of taking another loss in the valley. Like, they're 45th at Ken Palm. I, I just happen to think that they're a top 40 team. The losses are against West Virginia at Illinois State. Unfortunately, Illinois State's bad this year. At Southern Illinois, at Loyola Chicago, and then at Indiana State. So they got to, if they lose at Evansville, terrible loss. They're going to win that probably here on Wednesday night as we record the pod. And then they close out the season at Drake. And I would assume that's a quad three if they lose. Maybe it's a quad two. But then if you take. Who's the second best team? Loyola. I mean, the only way I think that this would let, be. Let me help you real quick. Um, they have nothing but quad three and quad four opportunities left on their schedule. For regular it, regular season. But in the Valley, if they played Loyola, where's Loyola? Loyola right now is 98th. Yes, yeah, even in the tournament. They got nothing that's a but quad, quad three. Yeah, that's a, well, that's a quad two right now. It's neutral. It? Neutral quad two is it's a quad two against Loyola. Oh, man. If they lost, I, I'll tell you this. I, I will say this. Like, if Northern Iowa gets to the Valley Championship game, loses to Loyola in the title game, I would I would like to entertain their case. We got to see what happens around them. But they would be 25 and 5, 26, 27. So they'd be 27 and 6 at that point. Uh, they'd be teetering, but I, I I don't think that they would get in. I would like to see him in, um, but I they might have to win out here. And by the way, Loyola right now is 98th 
in the net. So they slipped three spots, and that's not Q2 anymore. That's correct. Loyola can't take a bad loss. So, like, Loyola's only got one more game Saturday at Bradley, but Bradley's a solid team. So if Loyola loses that, you are correct. That would then be a quad three thing. And so that's why it's tough for you and I um, – not you and I, but you and I uh, specifically, because they're definitely good enough to be to be a 13 and beat a four. There's no doubt about it. They're one of the best three-point shooting teams in college basketball. They've got a good b- big man down low. Uh, so yeah, they they've got something there. But um, but we could be looking at a heartbreaker situation in the valley the valley championship game if it indeed it is uh, you and I versus Loyola Chicago. Yeah, I think we're on the same page here. I, 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 the, the only way they need an at-large is if they lose another game. And if they lose another game, I don't think they're going to be in a position to get an at-large. They'll be on the bubble. It'll be a conversation the entire week. But I think uh, with the bubble shrinking as Selection Sunday approaches, they'd probably be on the wrong side. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm just saying that's probably the way it works. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry M. F. Teagle, Legend. Shouts to Larnell. Please go subscribe the Ion College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. Five stars. Leave a nice comment. That's all I've ever asked from you. And we will be back on Friday previewing the weekend. Till then, take care.